I saw today that freaking Starlink is offering a 50% discount on Canada Starlink hardware. That means the $760 dish is like 350 bucks now. Well, that seems attractive. I know. I'm like, I've been like, I've been raking my brain trying to think like, is there a way we could pull this off for Brent? Because like, that's an obviously limited time deal. Now you still got the service, which is like, you know, 120, 180 bucks a month, somewhere in there. But 350 for the hardware is. That's incredible. I wonder what, why are they trying to get more customers or what? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Because they're probably hemorrhaging money because they're putting, uh, you know, spaceships up in space to make internet work. It's probably pretty expensive. The only region in North America where they have any bandwidth left is in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> Although it makes me think it probably means you'd probably get decent service. Ooh. Probably is a sign that it's not too crowded. Well, that sounds attractive. I don't know what you guys pay for LTE, but it's probably around the range of a monthly Starlink, you know, because I've obviously been there too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, cell service in general here is like some of the most expensive in the world. And so we're just doing that for our LTE stuff at the home, so it's not cheap. It's Office Hours with me, Chris. Well, welcome into the show that really shouldn't exist. I'm surprised it's made it to 25 episodes. I think it's just my excuse to hang out with Brent and the Mumble Room. Hello, Brentley. Well, hello. Thanks for having me back again. I, the door was shut and I wasn't sure, but you opened it last minute, so thank you. Yeah, I, I, I figured even if you couldn't be here in person, I'd open the virtual door to you. No. You know, it's because it's, it's been a busy week. It's been, it's had its ups, it's had its downs. Mm-hmm. So we'll get into some of that. But before we go there, let's holler at our virtual lug. Time appropriate greetings, Mombaroom. Welcome into the office. Welcome to hello. the office. Hi, Chris. Hi, Brent. Hello, guys. Hey there. Hello. Our uh, live stream happens every other Tuesday over at jupiter.tube at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. And we do have the mumble room going, and it's a great space like on the live streams and stuff to just ask questions, something you have on your mind, or uh, just chat away with us and do a little hang sesh, because that's really why we're here. Now, uh, one of the things that has been one of the real ups in the last week or two since we got together is we announced that Linux Fest Northwest is back. This is the first Linux Fest that's back since Jupiter Broadcasting went independent. That's incredible. It's very, very exciting because I know this sounds silly, but it might give you a little insight into how important this fest is to me. When we went independent, one of my very, very first thoughts before we'd even announced it was, what are we going to do at Linux Fest? Like, this is our opportunity. Like, what are we going to do? And then, of course, the pandemic hit. And so... They, they tried virtual for a bit, but it didn't really stick because that's a tricky game. And I don't think the virtual conferences were ever a huge hit for anyone. And so this year they're coming back and they're doing it in the fall, October 20th to the 22nd at the Bellingham Technical College in the Pacific Northwest. October can sometimes be rainy and it can sometimes be beautiful. So I'd say just plan for both. But it's this is as close to a JB Fest as we're going to do. We were going to do a JB Fest. And then when the Linux Fest crew reached out and said, hey, um, we're looking for help. And I think if we can get that help, we're going to do another go at a Linux Fest. And I said, yes, we're, we'll be there. And so we we have been participating for about the last eight weeks behind the scenes with Linux Fest to help organize this. And uh, I am more than happy to put my JB Fest plans on the back burner and focus on Linux Fest, a fest that can be for everyone. 
Um, and it is truly one of the great fests because not only is the venue fantastic at the Bellingham Technical College, but the people that go are a lot of the doers, the makers, and the learners, not the salespeople. Not that salespeople aren't welcome. They absolutely are. But I'm just talking about the vast majority and the general vibe. And the technical sessions are some of the best, and they're held in college classrooms with like desks and projectors and like a podium for the person to actually sit at and present. So like an appropriate venue, it seems. It's great. The Bellingham area is probably one of the most quintessential Pacific Northwest towns. And if you're ever going to visit the Pacific Northwest and you wanted something that isn't like the standard tourist traps, like Seattle's great, but there's a lot of tourist traps down there. Bellingham is one of those like little areas that is truly great. So it's a great conference, a great venue, and a great location. And of course, the whole JB Cruise. Well, as many of us that we can are going to get there. And so it's going to be a great opportunity to just uh, come say hi, hang out, and more than likely we'll be grilling stuff up for people. Details at linuxfestnorthwest.org. They'd like, it to, they'd like you to let them know you're coming if you are really solid, just so they can kind of start projecting. But one of the things we decided early on is we're making registration way smoother. We're getting rid of it. So you're not going to have to wait in line. You can just come right in. There's some downsides to that, including being able to figure out how many people attended, including things that involve liquor laws and whatnot. Um, I don't know how much I can say there, but it's just nice to know if you're coming or not. And then, of course, they do have a call for sessions as well. So if you have a talk you want to give, and it ranges, you know, we've had talks, obviously, on technical stuff. Several of our crew members have given talks. Wes did an awesome breakdown on audio and recording for podcasting. Alex did a fantastic tour on some self-hosting topics, and it, was, it might have even been before we did the self-hosted show. I think it might have been. Of course, there's even um, things for the significant others that might not be interested in the technical talks. Whoever you might be dragging along with you, there's uh, talks that are, I'd say, uh, appealing to them as well. So there's a lot going on, plus the area is fantastic. We really encourage you to make the time for it. We're not going to talk about it incessantly, but we are going to try to tell, tell you about it right now. So you have time to plan for October 20th through the 22nd. And really, I think the core days to be there are the 21st and the 22nd. And the goal is to do a live Linux Unplugged from uh, the floor of the Bellingham Technical College in the beautiful Bellingham, Washington at Linux Fest 2023. Live Linux Unplugged. Which is going to be a huge project. We're going to have speakers this time, right? We had speakers the last couple times, but it took us a few, it took us an embarrassingly long time to figure out that people can't hear us over the crowd. Because we had headphones on, we could hear ourselves just fine. I think it matches perfectly for what our goals were for this year. I mean, we last trip, you know, with Lady Jupes decided maybe we should do some live events instead of events and then try to squeeze into Lady Jupes and do a show right after the next day, you know? So I think this is actually perfect. Or to rephrase that, the, the, the realization was, holy crap, we work so hard on, on getting a venue, setting up these events, getting to them, and then we put all this energy into the actual event, and then we walk away, and we have to go record a show. Yeah. And it's just like, how did we not record a show <laughs> while we were there? And so that was the realization we had on that, on that last road trip. It's like, there's a way to incorporate the meetups and the shows. Like, maybe you come to a meetup, and we do a show you know, while you're there. I, that could be kind of a neat experience. I, I think it's fabulous because like so some of our listeners are lucky enough that they get in studio and are able to sit there and experience the show being made. And I know Alex has talked about his first time in the studio was like this 
amazing experience because he got to see this production that he really cared about live. And I feel like we should, you know, it's our responsibility to share that with the listeners more so like, why not? That sounds like an amazing gift we can give them and they can give it by just being there in attendance and cheering us on, making sure we don't screw it up. You know, I was thinking maybe in the springtime, it'd be neat to try to have a listener every week for, for a while. Oh, a listener every oh, Sunday cool. for Unplugged or a listener every Tuesday for office hours. I don't know if we have enough locally, but when we do these meetups and we do these get togethers, I start thinking maybe we got enough crew in the area where we could actually have somebody in studio every Sunday for a little while. Okay. Well, how will you decide who, you know, there's first scheduling come, first issues. Serve. Yeah, fair enough. But if someone wants to travel out to do it, wouldn't that be know. cool too? Like a calendar kind of link where we just, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. book the seat. I don't know. That is fun. I love this idea. Can I, can I book a seat? Well, you always have a seat, Brantley. No. You always have a seat. But you know, it also gets me to like, I'll, I, it makes me more inclined to grill and, and just kind of have more fun after the show instead of just sort of sit there and veg out. Um, so yeah, there's, that's been on my mind. I haven't, um, I haven't cemented the idea cause I feel like I just need to think about it a little bit more, but I'm putting it out there into the universe in case people have feedback on that idea. I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty good. You know, like you guys got some serious things knocked out here at the studio. Yeah, mostly because of Jeff. When he left, I started not getting anything done. <laughs> yeah, Jeff really was, I think, the secret sauce to this last yeah. sprint. And I think the other thing that I, I, I liked about this sprint is that it was kind of a, a skeleton crew sprint. Like we brought Wes in for a little bit, but it was mostly you, Jeff, and myself. And at times it was just you and Jeff. And keeping it to a minimum amount of people like that, I think actually made us get more things done. So not to say that I don't want to have larger sprints where more of us get together. Like maybe we do that before Linux Fest. Maybe we get together a few days before Linux Fest as a team. I think it just probably offers different uh, advantages. Like we were able to get together and say, okay, this particular slice of what JB wants to accomplish is what we're focusing on. And we you know, weren't distracted by creating a a mobile media center that we're going to bring to events in the future. You know, that's maybe Alex's thing whenever he visits next. And, uh, so, and with Je Jeff's expertise, I was able to support him in doing all of the stuff that he's an expert at. And we, we just like kind of got tunnel vision in a really good way and just like, boom, 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 got a bunch of stuff done. I mean, my car was probably a distraction, but that was a good one. It sounds like. Oh, I don't think it was a distraction at all. I'm actually kind of getting more serious about this Jupiter garage idea. Mm. So uh, I'll just mention really quickly, if you want to hear more about some of the projects that Brent and Jeff banged out, make sure you check out LUP 500. Uh, it was a big episode, huge success. We got to the top of the fountain chart. So thank you, everybody. It, we've also picked up new listeners as a result. So like, how cool is it for us? Two of our episodes trended. But the real ultimate gift is because you guys got us high on the charts, we also picked up a new batch of listeners at episode five frickin hundred of a podcast. <laughs> I can't thank the audience enough. Thank you, everyone. That was crazy. It was such a week to watch all of those boos come in. And yes, many and of man, them like in the middle of the night, just like pew from the studio. <laughs> and I got to be honest, I think office hours might have suffered a little bit because there was times where the liquidity got tight. So I think the test signal feed missed some boost. And I think this episode missed some boost. And it, it does stink because it makes me question the whole self-hosted setup. But I think, I think, you know. At the same time, I, I feel like pretty good about, I stepped up, I managed the liquidity, I figured out how to do 
this new system where I've where I've opened up a bunch of channels and it got me to kind of like look at some of the channels that I have and kind of reorganize things and get my fountain channel in better shape and get my podcast index channel in better shape. So ultimately, I actually think the node's in a better position than it was before LUP 500, but it it took me a few days into it just because we were doing so much stuff and we were shutting it down sometimes. So if I at any point missed anybody's booze, just let me know and uh, I'll I'll do a make good. Uh, But back to your car. Let's talk about that. Um, I think actually it may be one of the, the things that I enjoyed the most about you. Oh, wow. Really? Okay. Tell me more. I'll explain. But first, linode.com slash Jupiter. Head over to linode.com slash Jupiter and give them a little bit of a hug. You know what I'm saying? Like, let them know that you appreciate their super long-term support here at Jupiter Broadcasting. And maybe in that hug, imply that you would like even more support for even longer. And the one way to do that would be to give them a little bit of a hit at that linode.com slash Jupiter. And you know why you're there? Why not take advantage of that hundred dollars? They're going to give you 100 bucks to try out Linode, kick the tires for yourself. And a hundred dollars means you can actually try things, right? You can actually deploy multiple different systems in different areas. You could try out things like their S3 object storage. What I find about Linode is the more you use it, the more you appreciate it. So I think that hundred dollars is probably pretty key to the adoption because there are, there are details and aspects to it. There's finesse about it that I still am learning to appreciate. Like three years later, I have a friend who's been using Linode for a decade and they they've been using Linode for as long as they have, because Linode started with just this realization that, gosh, the Linux kernel's getting some great features. And I think this is like seriously, like back in the early two, two, six era, like, look at this user mode Linux stuff. I think we could do something with this. This is before we'd ever even called it the cloud. Like, I'm serious. Like this, they really, they've really been at this for a long time and they began at, at the first principles, and they've been building something that is incredible, competitive, and always getting better since then. They're, they've got 11 data centers today. They're bringing on another dozen this year. They are their own ISP, so the connections are incredible. Something else they do that's clever and really enjoyable is they support, like, all the distros, and they also mirror the repos, and the repos are current. Like, you do an update, and it will slam down faster in your machine then your SSH session can update. It's just like, it's like the matrix code, man. It's just like, you know what I'm saying? It's here. Let me do it one more time. Just to make sure you got it. You know, you got it now. That's how fast, like that. That's how fast it is. Now I know your system's pretty fast. I got a nice system over here. I got a nice system over there. And it's like, right. When I'm downloading the package, it's like, burp, burp, burp. Right. But when I'm on Linode, it's like, you see what I'm saying? That's way better. And you can see what I'm saying by going to linode.com slash Jupiter and getting that $100 and trying it for yourself. Go from try it. You're going to love it. I do. I love the speed. Linode.com slash Jupiter. You know what I'm talking about, Brent. Oh, I had to mute myself because that was so lovely. Thank you for that. So I've been getting more serious about this garage stuff. Like it kind of started as, well, you know, if I'm being honest, I got too many vehicles. Even my home is a vehicle. <laughs> and uh, you guys know what I'm talking about. It's like the service technicians are getting worse and worse and worse. They just Plus, don't care you have, as much. They have the compounding pressure of the EV industry getting bigger and better and growing in adoption, which have none of these mechanical parts that need oils and whatnots. And so you just have like this lower and lower quality in the technician. And you have this 
beginning to age out technology. And I thought, well, I'm not in a position to get a $60,000 EV anytime soon. So maybe I ought to learn how to take care of my vehicles because I think I might care more than anybody else. And then I also thought I have two types of vehicles. I have old vehicles. Well, old as in they're like, you know, 160,000 miles plus. And I've got young vehicles as in they're like a couple of years old, under 50,000 miles. And then I've got my, which is my RV. It's a, it's, it's kind of in the middle. It's got 55,000 miles on it, but for an RV, that's, that's actually kind of a lot. A lot of people's RV. You'd be surprised. In fact, I'd love to know boost in or email. How many miles are on your RV? If you have one, is it even over 10,000? You know, like most RVs don't really drive much. And so Lady Jupes, she travels and she's got, she's getting up there. And so I, and also when that engine in Lady Jupes is in operation, it's under constant stress because it's, it's moving 25,000 pounds, which I probably have overweight. So I came to this realization that A, nobody cares. B, the quality of service is getting worse. C, the price is going up. Thanks. And, you know, D through like G uh, is everything else from my cars are old to my cars are young. Why not take care of them now? But. When you came over and Jeff came over, uh, but with your car, it was like, wait a minute here. We could actually do something here. We could kind of get this garage into a state where I could do quick maintenance on my vehicles. But when people visit, especially those who drive to us, well, why not help them do an oil change or replace an air filter or do a brake change? Why not make this a thing that we could do with our with our co-hosts and our community members because it's it's a lot of fun to be out there with two or three of us working on a project together because we're talking about stuff. It's it's like it's a great bonding opportunity while also a way to give value back to people who who contribute value to the network. Yeah, I got to say, like my entire trip home, my car was so much better for that time we spent with it. And uh, I knew many of the problems that we tackled were problems for the last like year and a half, but never quite got to them. <laughs> but you're, you totally nailed it with that social aspect. It was, it was just no matter what we were doing or how many problems we ran into or how greasy we ended up being or how many times I had to crawl under the cars, it was just tons of fun. And I think it's also really good for us, Chris, especially those of us who work in high tech or are at our computers all day to just do something physical. Like there was something about building a thing that was physical, that was made better and will be for the next couple of years. That was really satisfying in a way that, you know, accomplishing things with bits and bytes just is never. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. My kind of silly way of saying it is stacking some W's because I watched <laughs> too much letter counting, but the, the idea is very much, when you work in the digital realm or when you work really in any kind of job that is a lot of mental work, you don't really get to see tangible results. And psychologically, there's something really gratifying about starting a project and seeing tangible results at the end of that project. It is, I think, probably the number one cure to a lack of motivation to feeling down to feeling sad is getting a win. And when you finish something and it's better than you started, that's a win. And if you can make something you own better or in better shape in that process, that's a win. And I think that's what I realized about the car stuff is that as a team, we could stack some W's together and then go off and like we were charged up. 
and we go off and do other stuff. And one of the things we do is when we need a little motivation, we'd stop and we'd watch some people on YouTube stack some W's and then we'd go off and stack some W's. <laughs> they have the advantage of editing, which is helpful, but uh... right, right. But it was really nice and it got me sort of supercharged because this is something that's been in the back of my mind now for several months. I've been very, very, very slowly working towards that goal. And when you and Jeff came, kind of supercharged that effort. Hmm. It sort of really took me into like, well, because again, it's that social aspect. You're I'm, you're making me do stuff that A, my vehicles didn't need or B, I wasn't going to do until I had some friends do it with me. And but but also I think C is I could I could look at what tools you were using. I could follow your advice. You guys have done this stuff before. And it's for me, it's such a new thing. It's a it's a brand new language because seemingly I have to learn things the absolutely hardest way possible. I don't know what my deal is, dude. It's just me, I guess. But like, I just pick an end goal and then like I learn my way to that end goal. And the only way I'm interested in figuring out all the crap I got to figure out is if I'm properly motivated to reach that carrot at the end goal. And so I decided I wanted to do regular maintenance. I, I would even say aggressive regular maintenance, like, you know, like really keep take good care of this stuff because I want it to last for a long time. Because I'd like to I'd like to let this EV stuff work itself out for like a decade, you know, and I'm not going to like replace the motor in my RV anytime soon. So I want all this stuff to last me, you know, until I'm honestly in my 50s. And then, you know, I, it's a great time for me to reevaluate. And what an opportunity, you know, give myself a decade to learn something. Um, and so this was a supercharge to that event because I was just picking all that kind of stuff up because like I needed to know like what even things are called tool wise or socket wise. Right. And it also helped me avoid a lot of mistakes hmm. and also be willing to try things that I probably would have been well, like the manual doesn't say to do that. Right. I just would have been too afraid to go with my instinct on something, but I could see you guys following your instincts on stuff. And that helped kind of tune that tune that sense. So I thought, well, with that momentum, I'll keep going. Right. That's what I thought. I'll keep going. And Monday was air filter change day here in the studio. I'd ordered some air filters and they arrived at Monday evening. I was hoping to have them arrive in the morning, but that's fine. They arrived late afternoon. So I stayed kind of late here at the studio, probably a little later than I should have. And I decided I'd do the air filters before I went. And I popped the new air filter in my GTI, 2018 GTI, and it went great. And I'm like, all right, stack to W. Look at this. It's noticeably a cleaner, better, higher quality air filter. So what I'm putting in is better than what I'm taking out. That always is nice, right? But in the back of my mind, since we worked on the uh, GTI while you were here, I was slightly concerned that maybe we had not fully filled the oil. Like, I thought it was like probably around 70%. And I have had it drilled into my head by multiple mechanics and multiple people online and YouTubers that it is, ex it is ex exceedingly essential that you don't let your oil go too low in this GTI because it, the oil pressure is really important. It's used for lots of things beyond just what other cars use it for. Whatever. I don't know. So I'm like, all right, I'll keep checking it. And I, and I did look at it. I did the old dipstick check. And, you know, to me, and I have a picture for those that are watching on PeerTube. You know, to me, it looked like, and of course, the way that I had to take it for the camera, it actually pulled, it dripped down a little bit. But it looked like it was probably about 60, 70%. 
I checked it when it was warm. I checked it when it was cold. It's hard to really get a good, clean read on this thing because when you pull the dipstick out, it drags oil and it kind of smears it all up the stick. So it's hard to get a good read. But when I could get a good read, it looked like there was probably a little room for oil going by the manual. It looked like there was a little bit of room for more oil. And I thought, okay, well, one of the things you can really do to destroy this GTI is run it without enough oil. And then as they get older and they burn oil, it becomes a real problem. Because you don't want that oil level to drop too low. So I thought, you know what I'll do is I'll just, I'll just pour it a little bit of oil. in, Just a little bit of oil. Because you can always add more, right? But you can't really take out without going through some hassle. So I'll just, I'll put like half a notch on the bottle. Maybe not even a full notch's worth of oil on the bottle. I'll pour that in. Just half a notch. Pour that right in. I, you know, because that's just a tiny amount. Would that even register on the dipstick even, I wondered? And so I pour it in, I check the dipstick, and the dipstick's looking about exactly the same. Almost ex- like, like I hadn't even added any oil. <laughs> so I think to myself, all right, well, you know, maybe if I run the engine and then I check it again, I'll actually see where it's at. So I start up the engine, and what happens next absolutely shocks me. You know, I step out of the driver's door, and this engine kind of makes like a little bit of a spotter noise and then it just starts rocking back and forth in its place and like you know of course i may be over, over exaggerating because it seemed really scary but i'm i'm telling you that thing was moving like it like what are these engine mounts made out of jello like I don't, I don't even know right so of course i move quick and i jump back into the driver's seat and i turn off the engine and i come around over here and i'm like wow i guess that's what it must do when it overfills I check the oil level, and it reads it's like at 50%. That dipstick is the worst dipstick in the world. So I don't even really know what's going on at this point. So I set up a code scanner, and I, I, uh, I run that, and I get a P0302 code. Oh, yeah. And, uh, of course, that is uh, a sign that the engine probably has a misfire, right? And cylinder 2 isn't firing correctly. Which probably means it's overfilled and oil has like seeped in there and the spark plug can't fill, can't fire correctly, which is not great. (laughs) Not great. And I, you know, I checked the dipstick again. It looks exactly the same. (laughs) It looks exactly the same, Brent. Oh, no. And I'm just thinking, I wish Brent was here. Like, at least I can bounce an idea off of him, you know? Uh, And I don't know, did I just break my car? Mm. Right? Did I just blow up the engine on my car? Because... It was rocking back and forth. I mean, too much oil is just as bad as too little oil. It's true. <laughs> yeah. Even in that video that you just shared, it sounded rough. Yeah. Like, that's a smooth car. That car just purrs, typically. And it sounded notably different in that clip that you grabbed. Yeah, it still does, too. Which worries me. <laughs> and so, what's the conclusion? Like, where did you get so I went online, of course, because what else are you going to do in that moment, right? So I'm just like, all right. I remained calm, thankfully. I did. I think I successfully remained calm. And I just sort of sat in the car and I, I Googled around for, you know, GTI, too much oil, P0302. And um, first of all, one of the things I noticed is people are like super nonchalant about having too much oil in their engine. And that's not for me, man. That's like not my <laughs> style. But like a lot of people like, oh, yeah, it'll just burn off. It's fine. And I'm like, no, no, it's not fine. So it's no, no. 
Um, but it does look like, you know, this could be one of the, what, what I experienced that rough idle and kind of stalling out is kind of something that can happen when you've overfilled it. And then I saw hundreds of Reddit and, and other posts about how people can't read the dipstick on this GTI mm-hmm. and about how it's a real problem. And that there is actually a way with a code scanner to just get the like precise milliliter amount of oil in the engine. And if you, if you just go by that, you're better off. So ultimately I think I'm going to have to do that. But you know what I did is I took advantage of that gosh darn oil extractor that we have. Yeah. The second one. Yeah. This is the perfect thing, right? So I put the oil, I put the tube in the dipstick hole and I just pumped out a tiny bit of oil, you know, to kind of just take it, a little, even just a notch further than we, where we had left it at, where we when we did the oil change, and started her back up, gave it a go for a little, you know, let it sit there and idle, and it, it was a little rough, but it was pretty, you know, it, it was fine. I mean, little rough com- you, on that car is, it was slightly noticeably rough, right? Like it, it was still for most cars, it was a, it's a very smooth idle, and and there was some white smoke. Uh-oh. Coming out the tailpipe, Uh-oh. and I'm like, "Oh, there it is. Okay, there's another <laughs> sign that I overfilled it, right? Yeah, I know. Oh, I'm learning, bro. I'm learning, man. I'm oh, I'm learning. So there's another sign that I I almost blew up my engine on my car, but I uh, so I let it idle for a bit. I let it get up to about 175 degrees, and then I checked the oil, and uh, it looked pretty good. It looked about like it's 70 percent, and so I figured, I think what this car needs now, actually, I was a little scared to do it, but I think it needs to be driven. I think I need to drive it, see if it kind of works out what's going on. So I drove it home and the next morning, it was a cold morning. I drove it into the studio and I parked it for a bit and uh, I captured this. Okay. Hey, Brent. Okay. So it's Tuesday morning. I've been at the studio for like uh, 20 minutes and I parked the car and I set a timer for 10 minutes and it just went off. And the Volkswagen GTI manual says that to properly check the oil level, one should bring the engine up to temperature and then let it sit for five to 10 minutes. Now, since I just drove it on the freeway for like 23, 25 minutes, I figure the full 10 minutes ought to do. So it's been sitting, I'm gonna pull the dipstick and see if I can get an accurate oil level reading, which so far I feel like I have been unable to get on this dipstick. So let's check. Thankfully I already have the hood pop. So. It's right here, so I'll pull it up, and survey says, oh, it's about, hmm, I'd say it reads about 80% up the hash marks. I think that's about 80% up the hash marks there, maybe 5 10% left. I'm going to wipe her off, do the old dip one more time. That, I'm not even kidding you, is the most accurate reading I have ever gotten on this dipstick. So there's something to it. And we'll stick her back in and we'll try again, because I want to see if I can get a better reading yet. It's got little grooves you gotta make sure it sits into. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna go with about 80% on the old dipper there. You know what, I might just live with that. I think I'm gonna live with that. I like that reading. It is a little bit more accurate um, after you let it sit for the 10. So it, it reads about where I'd like it to be warm and it reads low when it's cold. So riddle me that. How does that work? If anything, shouldn't it be flipped? So I show, I show it's low when it's cold and, and just about right when it's warm. And wouldn't you think all the oil would be, you know, up in the engine? So I, 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 can, I can live with where it's at. I actually still suspect it's a little low. 
just by the sound of the engine. But I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm completely off. It just seems to me that the oil level increases when the engine is warm and it decreases when the engine is cold. And I just don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Welcome to the journey. <laughs> yeah. You're you're hitting the crux of what it is to work on mechanical things <laughs> from my experience, which is there are so many, and this is very akin to technology, actually. There are so many like little edge cases or like experience-based observations that you make on various parts of mechanical tasks and technological tasks, of course. And, you know, something as simple as like, this stick is supposed to show me how much oil is in this engine. It's like, that's what you're discovering is actually kind of false because, um, and I think I've told this story before, but um, I, one of my first, well, my very first job was working at a full serve gas station. And one of the things we had to offer was to check everyone's oil. So I've checked many a dipstick, Chris. I'm a dipsticking expert. A connoisseur of the dipsticks. Mm, that is me. Yes, yes. And that knowledge just never leaves you. And uh, you, you know, from dipping so many sticks, uh, I learned that some are super simple and they give you the result you're looking for right away. Others, which sounds like yours is in the other category, are a pain. And one of the tricks I might suggest that you do is kind of give it a twist while you're pulling it out. For some reason, sometimes if you can keep the oil from like rubbing off on the edge of the like dipstick tunnel thing, um, yeah. sometimes that can help. That's definitely a thing I'm having. But it sounds like you have many more questions like, A, why is the oil higher when it's warmer than it is when it's cold? And I think probably that's just like oil expansion, although I have heard that more for other fluids than not. Well, so that raises the question when I'm filling it then, do I need to leave some room for oil expansion? Because where we filled it, I showed the dipstick on the live stream. It was like 60, 70% filled. And that, that was even after I kind of held the dipstick up so gravity pulled the oil down so I could take the picture because I was trying to get the light. So it may have even been more like half filled uh, originally. So then I just add a touch and now it's overfilled. And it does make me kind of go, I wish I had just had a digital sensor. So I think I am going to try that for the next one. It's a good one. I think my conventional knowledge that I can share with you, and I am not an expert in your particular vehicle, but the conventional knowledge is that from the top of the hash marks to the bottom of the hash marks is a fixed volume of liquid okay. that you can add to your engine. So okay. typically that's about a liter or a quart in your case. And so if you're at 70%, then you need to add 300 mils to get to 100%. That's good to know. Okay. What I might suggest is maybe you measure that liquid out. You know, maybe you go a little less, like 200 mils. Maybe you measure that out before putting it in the engine. So get yourself, I don't know, like a kitchen measuring cup or something like that. And uh, do it that way. At least then you're doing it in a measured approach incrementally instead of just like, well, I don't know, it's about that much, feels like. That may help. But again, your engine seems like it's got quite the personality, so who knows? Yeah, and when you're looking this stuff up, there are so many various different hot takes. Like Minimec, you have like the opposite, right? If you check when your engine's hot, you get a misreading, sounds like. 
I have a Mini Cooper S second generation. So this is this new generation Mini. So the company owned by BMW, not these old Mini Coopers. And they have the most horrible dipstick I've ever seen. So it's very, it's, it's very difficult to read out the oil level. And I ask my, uh, the people how I could read it out. And they say, uh, read it out when it's cold. And if you are one third over the minimum, and the minimum, I posted a picture in Element, so you have a little two holes uh, just under the lower third. That's the minimum level. And if the oil is one third higher of that, then you're in optimal. If it's a little bit higher, it's okay. But read it out when it's cold, because then the oil is thicker and it sticks better to that thick, uh, dipstick. If it's warm, <laughs> It is very, very difficult to read it out. You have no clue how high your oil level is. So it's really difficult. So that's the experience I had. Interesting. It is, it is an analog world, right? My whole background is in troubleshooting digital problems. It's also hilarious how the dipstick neck technology hasn't changed for like 150 years. <laughs> We're still having the same problems. <laughs> it looks like the third generation minis, they have digital ones, so you have no problems there. But the second generation still have the analog ones. I know some car manufacturers have just removed the dipsticks now, which when I first heard that, I thought, that's absolutely outrageous and ludicrous. How am I going to do a top extraction? Then... Now, after having this experience, I'm like, yeah, I think I'm going to use a digital meter. I think I'm uh, now I'm done with this dipstick BS. <laughs> oh well, I don't. So now I don't really know where it's at. I just I'm, I'm it's at like seventy ish percent on the dipstick, and I'm just going to call it good. Uh, the P zero three zero two was a. By the way, just before anybody panics, it was a pending code. It only happened once. It hasn't misfired since. So I think I'm in the I'm in the clear. I shut her down immediately as soon as i saw it's getting a little weird and it didn't sound right i shut her down but you know i had to move my my big butt around the door because <laughs> like the door was open i was like uh, you know it's so annoying these systems with the keyless ignition and stuff if you take the key out like they don't they don't cooperate unless the key is in the car so you know you got to get in there and actually shut it down but um it's been fine so far hopefully i didn't wreck my car but Brentley, let's uh, let's transition to the digital world. What do you say? Well, please, where the dipsticks are easy to read. Yeah, and I know you've been getting headless recently. Well, I've been getting excited about this. This is something we've been talking about for quite a long time. And as always, our listeners are just, can you say the best? I'll say it. Our listeners are the best. And uh, so we've been asking for a way uh, for like a whole year now to have audience members and even us included be able to seed peer tube from various regions europe was a common one that we you know folks were trying to connect to peer tube and weren't getting any seeds so we thought geez there must be this nice way to seed some peers over there so that we everyone can have a nice quick experience and it turns out that wasn't really a thing <laughs> i did find an issue um where that was a feature ask since about 2017 and hasn't really seen much in terms of activity at all. So one of our listeners uh, on GitHub by Tire, I don't know, how, how would you say this, Chris? You want, you're asking me? You're asking me, dude. Tears, well, it's more entertaining when you do it. <laughs> uh, you know what I would say? I would say, uh, hmm, I'd say Tyra, 
Tyra Arm, or I would say, just to have some fun, I'd say Ty Rassaram. Ty Rassaram. There it is. <laughs> so Ty Rassaram came and uh, <laughs> created what is still in its infancy, but it's called the PeerTube Headless Cedar, and it does exactly this. It allows you to headlessly seed uh, some PeerTube instances. Runs with Python, Selenium, and Firefox to monitor and see live streams of a PeerTube channel headlessly. So this is exactly what we are hoping for. It's early days, but there is like a Docker Compose file, so you can get this thing running up pretty quickly. And we have heard from many users, some in the chat room right now, who have been using this with great success. And I think this is amazing. Chris, I feel like it's our responsibility perhaps to also put out some seeds out there if we're not finding enough in certain mm. regions. So if there are regions that you feel like maybe you need a little boost, uh, let us know and we'll see yeah. what we can do. Or the audience, you know, might react and be willing to do some seeds in various regions. Boost in with a boost request. Yeah, maybe we could spin up a, a, a VPS on Linode in like an area that's underserved or something and use this. I'd be totally down for that. We've also been thinking maybe this needs a bit of a better name. I know you've been thinking about that, Chris. Yeah, we definitely need a better name. PeerTube Headless Cedar is, I mean, it t it's right there on the tin. It tells you what it is and you got to appreciate that about it. So I'm not trying to discount that. But it doesn't really like pop, right? Like when you walk away from this episode, dear listener, you won't remember PeerTube Headless Cedar. Well, you might now that I said you won't because you're that kind of, I know you, <laughs> I got you. But you know what I'm saying, right? Like the name just doesn't pop. It needs to be like Headless Cedar 5000, right? Or it needs to be something that is, Really kind of like over the top. So you remember it like PeerTube CDN killer, something like that, but maybe not that, you know, but have some punch. So my initial reaction when you asked for a new name for this was, I don't know why, but I first thought of Professor Fink from The Simpsons, like, yeah, and he's the inventor guy. And, yeah. Uh, so it turns out, of course, the internet has lists of all of his inventions. And I don't know if they're so good for this project. Oh. Some some that kind of stood out for me was like, one of them is the radio source finding ear trumpet. <laughs> no. Or another one is uh, hoaxoscope or hamburger earmuffs. No. And, and I don't think they're really appropriate. So I think we need a little help here to try to yeah. see if we can come up with a name that's a bit maybe more memorable. I mean, hamburger earmuffs is memorable, but I don't think it quite fits. So, help. Yeah. But thank you to Terrasasam for uh, coming up with, uh, Terrasasam for coming up with that. That's really awesome. Now it's up to us as a community to take it even further and actually implement it. You know, that Wes is pretty good at coming up with names and titles. Maybe we should have him come up with a good name for it. Mm. Takov in the uh, chat room says seed tube. So it could be just that simple, really. Oh, that's kind of brilliant. Seed tube. Or what about seed tuber? Or something like, because see, I don't want it to sound like it's a peer tube competitor, but seed tube, yeah, maybe that's good. That's good. <laughs> I know it's so simple. How do we not think of this? I don't know, man. Oh, the old puff manto. I like that. I think that's a big, con I think that's a good contender. So, you know, because I don't have enough going on, uh, I agreed to do a webinar on March 30th that I thought I'd let the audience know about. It's, uh, it's something that RSS.com is putting on along with myself and Nick from Fountain FM. And it is a talk about value for value. It's going to be a free webinar. I got a link in the show notes. And um, I got a few things to talk about. You know, I've been thinking about this. And we have an agenda. We're going to mostly focus, well, 
mostly I say, we're going to focus on value for value. I talk about podcasts like ours, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, some lessons learned and do a Q&A. So if you'd like to get in, there is a RSVP. It is a free webinar on Thursday, March 30th at 9 a.m. Pacific. Oh, it's going to be early. I'm still going to have CPAP face, but... (laughs) And I'll probably do it for my actual office, too. Whoa, that's exciting. Yeah. You get that node heat on your legs. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, I you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about, like, some of, like, the -the behind-the-scenes challenges, I think, with running sponsors. What? There are challenges? I think there's stuff people don't talk about. Yeah. There's there's stuff. There is it's it's a it's a tricky, tricky business. Are you gonna give us a tease maybe of the some of the content you're thinking of sharing, or is that something maybe if uh, up to you? Podcast advertising is in a really precarious situation right now because it's a lot to manage from the podcaster side in some cases. Unless they defer to an agency, which takes 30 to 50% or dynamic ads. And if you think about it from like a corporate marketing standpoint, it's a lot of effort for them to do these one-off bespoke deals with individual podcasters. And a typical ad deal, when they're brand new to a market, it's not unusual for that to take six months to get that relationship going. And it could even take another two to three months before there's even the first ad. That process takes a lot of time if you think about it from a corporate resource standpoint. It takes a lot of time on the podcaster standpoint too, but that's their business. But on the sponsor staff side, they got to have staff for that. And they got to have a staff member who can stay on that conversation for six months. Maybe it's three months, maybe it's a month, but it's always at least a month. That's a big ask, and it's a lot of complication. And when you think about that from a continuity standpoint, it generally doesn't work for more than about a year or so before somebody moves on to another position or gets another job. And so for them, it takes a lot of time to get into bespoke podcasts like ours and other podcasters out there in this space because of that one-on-one nature. And that drives them to dynamic ads as well. And it creates this downward price pressure on ads once you go automated. It's a pretty complicated and a lot of headwinds situation. And so that's kind of the nature, I think, the background that will inform the webinar and how I feel like value for value is specifically the solution, how it realigns incentives, how it allows the podcaster to focus on the work and prevent burnout, and probably how it's ultimately better because Every podcast that has sponsorships will inevitably have a moment, maybe multiple times if they're lucky. And I say that, like, you know what I mean? Like, you're going to have this problem if you're lucky multiple times where something with the sponsor changes and you now as a podcaster have to decide between going with your audience or going with the sponsor who's paying you. And I've had to make that decision several times. Like, in the past, GoDaddy was a fantastic sponsor. They're a company that still loves working with us. They would love to sponsor us right now if they could. And GoDaddy was easy to work with from like a business standpoint. But SOPA happened. And the audience's impression and thoughts around GoDaddy changed. And so Jupiter Broadcasting had to make that change. And some podcasters are not in a position, because they don't have membership programs, they don't have booths, to make those really hard business decisions. You know, can you imagine if uh like GoDaddy was sponsoring many shows, so I don't remember now, but let's say they represented 70% of the uh, um, income for the company. 
Could you imagine as a business firing 70% of your income? How do you do that? Right? It just advertising creates a pretty complicated incentive system. And uh, value for value and the boosts completely destroy that incentive system. And it makes the audience the customer. And it makes it, it makes pleasing them the ultimate object, objective. But it also has massive ramifications behind the scenes because it takes out all of these moral dilemmas that a podcaster has to struggle with. It takes out the six months of work that it takes to spin up a single sponsor. It takes out the ongoing management of the relationship. And all of that time is either spent on the podcast or it's spent on improving the podcaster's life, making them a better human being, more rounded, and making the work they do more sustainable. And it means that the audience knows the deal because they're the ones funding the production. So they're the ones that are going to get the straight, the straight shooting from the podcaster because what are you going to do? Lie to your biggest customer? That's not likely, right? So it's just, it, it, cre it creates a more trustworthy medium in an era when media is a very hard thing to trust right now, especially on YouTube, especially on the mainstream media. So I just think that's a huge deal. So that's probably the focus of the webinar. Now, I wonder, Chris, uh, this got me thinking, do you ever see value for value being used by sponsors? Like, for instance, we read, you know, some of our big spender boosters, you know, oh, someone came in with 500,000 sats and we say thanks to them. Do you ever see a sponsor, for instance, coming in and boosting a podcast just to get maybe that thanks or that little spot somewhere or or even just as a way of thanking the open source community? That'd be a pretty clever move. Uh, they should. Somebody should. <laughs> right? It's an open ecosystem. Let's find out. I mean, why wouldn't you? Right? It's just I don't think many of them are that tuned into it. Right? It's more of a traditional business relationship, contract, you know, IOs, payments, PO orders, those, that type of stuff. But I think eventually somebody might, there's now something like almost 12,500 podcasts that are taking boosts. So <laughs> maybe eventually somebody will, I'll have a link to the value for value webinar in the show notes if you're curious, but why don't we uh, do some boosts? And now it is time for the boost. And Gene Bean comes in with 11,101 sets. Uh, all these I started listening boosts made me finally look. It seems I started listening to LUP around episode 410 and then got hooked. And I haven't missed one since playing with LUP 416, 197, and self-hosted 52 and Office Hours 1. And Gene Bean sent that into Unplugged. Office Hours 1. That's amazing. I like that he started there. It means he trusted us right away, you know? That's hard to do. <laughs> Why would you trust us? <laughs> We got a live boost, too, from TacOff751. says, uh, my current live streaming setup is on iOS with VLC listening to JB Live FM and then using Fluffy Chat for the uh, live chat. That's nice. Says, I couldn't really handle the element long loading times. Yeah, that can mm -hmm. be a thing on iOS. I've noticed it's particularly worse on iOS than it is on Android. Element just takes longer to, like, sync up on iOS. Maybe it's because it's not running in the background. I don't know. My personal experience is it kind of comes and goes. Some days it's just mm. not great. And like today, for instance, has been fabulous. So I don't know what that's about. Marcel comes in with 4,000 sats. And I was saying, I think something was wrong with the test signal feed. We didn't get any updates. We didn't get any boosts. So I kind of have abandoned the test signal feed. He says, every episode of the test signal feed, I got, I boosted. 
I got the fountain receipts to prove it. I think you have the split set up wrong. I boosted the episode where you put me in the split because I thought the self-boost was funny. For me, it shows that I get 5%. Podcast gets 1%, but nobody else gets the split. <laughs> ah, yes, that was that was an issue for a minute. Uh, he says, I got all that, all that split money. Well, then keep boosting it in, Marcel. <laughs> That's awesome. I know. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it's, it's always interesting when you're uh, messing around with RSS feeds because it gets cached everywhere and it gets in databases. And it's like, when you update your RSS feed, you really just want it to be the final version because the if you put something in there wrong, it will get out there. Elray comes in with a row of ducks and asks, what is your favorite food? I think I know, but let's start with you, Brent. <laughs> I think usually my quick answer is Thai food. Um, it matches very easily a lot of my like dietary needs, but it's just gosh darn delicious. And I've not made it to Thailand yet to, I mean, taste it firsthand, let's just say. But uh, almost everywhere I travel, that's one of the things I, I always try to taste somewhere. So I feel like Thai food would be an easy win for me. So if you want to get in my good books. I feel like take me out to Thai. <laughs> uh, but the other one for me uh, in the same vein is Indian food. And some of it's okay. Some of it is fabulous. And when listener Jeff was in town uh, when we were doing the little mini sprint uh, last week, we introduced him to some Thai food. And I feel like, listener Jeff, you just kind of fell in love in a way that you weren't uh, convinced previously. So... My answer would be Thai food, but I'm always interested in just like learning all sorts about food. I'm just food inspired. So I feel like I'm open to trying anything. And especially one of my favorite things is to just cook with people. It's one of the things I love doing with people I love is cooking together. So, um, and we love it. Wow. Thanks. So that's, that's my food connect. I can talk about food for days, but, um, Chris, what about you? Favorite food? Ah, geez, it changes. Like if I just had to have a go-to, it'd be Thai food. But um, I also love home-cooked foods. You know what I mean? Like stuff that you Mm -hmm. spend time on that is delicious. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes it could be stuff on the grill, but sometimes it's like a soup that's made from scratch. It's just that stuff has really been hitting the spot recently as we've just kind of gotten better and better at that. And having the NextCloud recipes has been really handy because when we nail something, we just document it right there in the recipes nice. app and then try to reproduce it later. Hadi always likes to put a new spin on it. I do too, actually. You know, uh, like when, even when we did the steaks while you were here, it's like I put a new spin on the marinade just because that's what I had. You know, let's try this and let's try this. It's always like a science experiment for me. And I love that stuff. It's, it's such a nice avenue of creativity, I find. You know, you can change something up and there's so many senses involved. It's just a lovely experience. Purple Dog says, with a row of ducks, since you weren't sure what the shipping cost was to the UK for a robe, it is $65. Oh. Oh, Purple Dog, you know what's the worst? That's not even the most expensive. It's crazy. Now, in the US, it's like cheap. Um, and some other parts of the world, like Canada uh, and other places, cheap-ish. But man, oh man. And we tried like the Dickens to get a uh, facility. Over in uh, somewhere in the EU that would make it at least cheaper. And um, they were turds. I'll just put it that way. We had the, we had a pallet of robes headed their way, showed up at their door, and they said, eh, I changed your mind. <laughs> I think they were just jealous. <laughs> yeah, now watch. They're going to start selling the robe. Mm-hmm. Hey, E-Rock sends in 2,500 sats. My bid is to call the giraffing tag issue the giraffing. <laughs> Last week... 
we decided to name the tag with an emoji, or name the show, I should say, I'm sorry, with an emoji. Sort of as a test of our system. It was a risky proposition. It was a very risky proposition. I mean, I, I feel like it was your idea, right? It wasn't my idea, so it was your fault, really. If you've not noticed, I kind of get thrills from breaking things. Yeah, but, but then fixing chief QA them. guy. Uh, and I wasn't sure what was going to happen. I know I talked about the issue of having the giraffe in some tags for our recent episodes, and that had some interesting challenges um but i didn't know what was going to happen if we just named it as the title and uh i mean it kept us from having to come up with a more intelligent title because you know photos are worth a thousand words so best title ever i remember the post-show discussion was specifically about you being a chaos monkey that's what i remember and so it turns out nothing broke which was sort of well, surprising. Thanks to Wes. You yeah, know, you're right. Like, the uh, the thing that I always forget is that we make video versions of these shows available on our YouTube channel. <laughs> and um, those have to be rendered. And right. when you are trying to pass an emoji to a script that's going to render a video with FFmpeg on the command line, it, I think it creates issues. So, <laughs> Yeah, luckily Wes is an intelligent fella and he saw this coming before it was published. So... <laughs> Thank you, Wes, for working extra hard to make that okay. <laughs> but that seemed to be the only thing that went wrong. We got many reports from listeners as as it published saying, no, everything seems fine in my podcatcher and various apps just seem to show it just fine. And you thought yours was broken for a bit, but it turned out you were just looking at the wrong episode or something like that. And it seemed everything seemed fine. So actually, success, boring success. What I, it was a boring success, uh, thanks to Wes's efforts. But what I was impressed by is all the podcast apps handling it as well as they did. I thought that might be where it would break. Uh, all right. Faraday Fedora comes in with a row of ducks. Thanks for the insights. Shout out to all the members helping keep things going. Also, I have to say to the sponsors you pick, they've been great. But if you thought about doing a trash joke episode on Office Hours, just go back to awful ads, get some commentary on the ads in between. That could be fun. Do I have... So you saying like I should like uh, react to my own bad ads? Hmm, that could be a fun episode. Um, do I have bad ads? Ooh, do I have bad ads? I don't know. Fine, I bet if you maybe. I don't know if maybe. Well, I think maybe the sentiment here is like, what if we took a mattress ad or something? Oh, what would that look like? And I was thinking like maybe critiquing like there are some GoDaddy reads where uh, Danica and I texted and then I would read some of the text messages in the read. I can see that being a little cringy now. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, let us know. Refine the idea a bit, but I like it. 412 Linux comes in with 2048 sets. This is our last boost. So if I missed your boost, um, probably my bad. So let me know. Uh, he says, hey, gents, question for you. For someone that was a casual Trek watchers for years ago, for years now, I watched the movies. I watched some TNG in the original series. Jeez, that's quite a bit, man. Uh, where does someone begin with the all new shows? Should I just start watching Picard or should I start with the strange new worlds? Thanks. <laughs> well, I, I feel like. Lower Decks feels like the place to start. Like, it's easy to get into, and it's just fun, and it kind of has references to all of those past series. I feel like maybe that's the place to go. Hmm, I could see that. I think Lower Decks is richer when you're more familiar with the canon, but it is a lot of fun without it, and it is 
it is kind of giving you hints at stuff you could go watch. So I think Lower Decks might be the best suggestion. Uh, Picard season one and two are pretty rough. Season three is being declared as some of the best Star Trek in the last 20 years. We'll see if it lives up to that. Whoa. I I disagree with that so far. I mean, we're only three episodes in. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Strange New Worlds is a solid. Ren just recently finished that. I think you'd agree. Season one was pretty solid. I would easily watch it again. Uh, Discovery is about to be canceled. So you might as well let them finish their last season and then just watch it all in one go and get it over with. I don't even know if you need to, to be honest with you. I liked the first dish season. There's some stuff in there that's... The first three episodes of all new Trek are good. That's usually how it goes. The first three episodes are all pretty good. And then it kind of goes off the rails there. Uh, but Picard, people are saying, hasn't gone off the rails by episode four. So that's why I think why everybody's so excited is it made it past the third episode and people still like it. <laughs> so that tells you a little bit where the bar is. Uh, and I just personally finished up Enterprise, a rewatch on Enterprise, which is a bit sad because the show is definitely cut short. Four seasons wasn't enough. And then the final episode is a rough watch, I have to say. So it's... This is funny enough, one of the hardest questions that comes in is where do you start with Star Trek? I bought Star Trek.sexy, the domain, years ago, thinking I'd create a list of the <laughs> There's definitive. There's still time, Chris. Yeah, maybe I will one day. Maybe I will one day. You know, when I'm done doing this dang office hours podcast, you know? Because what am I even doing over here? Are you kicking us out? Is that what's happening right now? It's about time. It is about oh. time. But I want to say thank you to the boosters who did boost in. Uh, it wasn't a huge showing this week, but I think I also missed some of them because it's been a busy couple of weeks and the node was down a couple of times. But I appreciate the support. It's a great way to uh, support the ongoing production, but also thank us for the specific episode. You could become a member at Jupiter.tube. You get an ad-free version of Office Hours over there. And you know what I'm going to say is, uh, geez, look at Bitcoin Go. Hmm. Well, everybody who's boosted in, your boosts are now doing more work for you. How about that? Isn't that nice? That's pretty cool. That's pretty nice. Thank you, everybody, so much for your support. If you'd like to boost in, I think the easiest way these days is to do it from your web browser. You can absolutely get a new podcast app and experience the tidal wave of new features. And uh, if you are an Android developer, particularly familiar with Kotlin, the Podverse folks are looking for some help getting some bugs worked out over there and including just helping them get a really nice, solid Kotlin dev environment set up going. If that might be something you're familiar with, reach out over there on the GitHub for Podverse. And uh, new podcast apps for all of the new apps over there. And of course, there's lots more to share. We have many things we're working on we'll be talking about on future episodes of Office Hours. So what is it, Brent? Officehours.hair? Still? It is. Yes, now, it is. How could you forget? Well, I'm going to shut it all down. That's it. Office Hours are over. I got to clean up. I got to go microwave a lunch or something. But thanks for joining us. I'll see you on the next episode.